Hey, go ahead and open your Bibles to Philippians. We're starting a new series. It's going to be based out of Philippians, um, but it's not so much a, an expositional study of Philippians. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get what we're doing uh, in the weeks to come as, as we're kind of cruising along here. Um, but we're going to start in Philippians. I want to read verses 1 through 11. Um, we want to make some observations about Paul uh, about his, his mood, um, his ministry, uh, his, his understanding of who God is so that our understanding can better match his. Let's stand in honor of God and his word. I'm going to read verses 1 through 11. Uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers or elders and deacons. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearned for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for Paul's words, your words through Paul that help us to understand more your heart for your people, to help us to see Jesus more clearly, to help us to respond to Jesus uh, more consistently. We pray this in his name. Amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> All right, so we want to talk about a few things that we see going on here. Um, uh, partnership in the gospel being the main thing, okay? Look at verses 3, 4, 5, and, um, and elsewhere. But uh, Paul's making his greetings to, to the, the saints at Philippi. He's writing from a prison. I think maybe uh, many of you are familiar with the book of Philippians. Uh, this isn't your first rodeo in Philippians. In fact, you were here a couple of years back. Kyle did an entire series here in Philippians. And you're like, oh yeah, I remember every one of those. No, you don't. You don't even remember last Sunday's sermon, do you? All right. Um, and, and, but, so you know, Paul's writing from, from prison and this is his joy letter, right? In verse three, he says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always and every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, for you are all partakers with me of grace, this is now verse seven, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So 
Let's look at the, at, at the Philippians' partnership in the gospel and their defense and confirmation of the gospel. Um, a couple of things just for, for, to, to set the stage. Paul keeps using this word, the word gospel. And if you've you know, been in church for a little bit, you know what that word means. It literally means good news. Uh, and it's one word in the Greek, and we translate it good news. Uh, but gospel is not just this technical term for some theological data. It, it really ought to make us kind of ping and go, this, these are God's glad messages to us. The gospel is his good news, his glad message. And Paul uses the word gospel in the book of Philippians um, like nine times, which is proportionately more often than he uses the word gospel or good news or glad message, proportionally more often than he does in any of his other New Testament writings. So he's, he's kind of on a run here, right? Like, like, like he's, he kind of is, is using the word gospel a lot because he's thinking about how good this is, the goodness of God that's running after us. And then he also uses the word joy a lot, like 19 times, right? No, 16 times, I'm sorry. The word joy or some form of it, like rejoice, he uses 16 times in, in Philippians' four short chapters because he's really responding and he's really overwhelmed by this glad message, the, the good news that God is sharing with him and through him and, and its effect on other people. Um, so he's rejoicing specifically in this prayer because the Philippians have, have renewed their concern uh, for Paul, who's in jail, writing from jail to the saints in Philippi, a city in which he was previously imprisoned. <laughs> he was in jail in Philippi, his first missionary journey, and now here he is writing to the saints in Philippi, uh, you know, sending his greetings back to them. Uh, really kind of, kind of interesting to see the, the, the way prison is the bookends for this letter to the Philippians. And the Philippians have sent Paul a gift um, to try to sustain him in prison, to, to care for his needs. We read about this, go, you, if you've still got Philippians open, look at chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 14. And Paul says, it was kind of you to share, to have fellowship in my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Um, and, I, and this is a part of the partnership in the gospel that the Philippians are, are, are sharing, is that they're supporting Paul financially. But I, I wanted to point this out just to, to help us see that for all of his emphasis on joy, don't miss that Paul is a realist. And he's talking about his, his trouble, right? He's, he's referring to his imprisonment. He's referring to, to the injustice that he's suffering. He's referring to the imprisonment, you know, his condition. He's referring to, to the pain and the deprivation. So, when we hear his focus on joy in Philippians, it ought not, we, we ought not to think that Paul somehow is just living on some other mystical plane, you know, where he's in the lotus position, 
meditating and impervious to the trouble around him. That's not what's going on. You know, it doesn't mean that everything is always great. Prison's wonderful. You ought to try it. That's not his, his posture at all. He's acknowledging the pain and the difficulty, and yet joy is still outweighing the pain, right? The, the joy in Jesus is greater than the trouble he has in prison. If you put him on a scale, his sense of joy in the gospel outweighs the pain of imprisonment, okay? So he's got that much joy going on. Um, and he's thankful for this group of Christians back in Philippi who haven't forgotten about him. They're in partnership with him in the gospel, and he describes their partnership as, def as their de defense and confirmation, right? The defense and confirmation of the gospel. Uh, and, and that's part of what Paul's referring to is, is how their response, their joyful response to the gospel is a testimony to everybody around them. It's part of the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Do you know that our greatest defense and confirmation of the gospel is its effect on our character and our mood and our lives? Like our... We, we, we can fall into thinking that, okay, uh, I'm supposed to, to defend and confirm the gospel. So that means that I've got to get on Facebook or whatever social media platform, and I've got to you know, do this post or, or send this tweet, you know, kind of refuting what so-and-so has said, you know, or, or, or standing up for what so, against what so-and-so has posted, Right? And, and we, we get into this mode of thinking that, you know, the way that I defend and confirm the gospel is by winning arguments. Or the way that I defend and confirm the gospel is by voting a certain way and making sure everybody knows that. Or the way that I defend and confirm the gospel, you know, is by giving, you know, to all these needs, you know, and, and charities and organizations, or by giving my time and, and energy to, to serving, you know, the, the least of these and the ones that society's forgotten all about. And this are, you know, there's nothing wrong with, you know, with, with manners and kindness and civility engaging in, you know, helpful conversations there's nothing wrong, obviously, with serving the poor. There's nothing wrong with giving, you know, and being generous. But none of those things are our best confirmation and defense of the gospel. The most effective defense and confirmation of the gospel is not anything you and I do. It's more who we become. It has everything to do with the gospel's change that takes place in our lives so that when Paul describes things like, you know, to the Galatians, when he says that the, the fruit of the Spirit is love and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that those change. Wait, I forgot one, didn't I? Joy. Your love the second thing that Paul lists 
to demonstrate the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to renew us and change us, and to demonstrate and confirm and defend the gospel to the whole world, the change in our lives. The second thing that he mentions is joy. Love being the greatest, right? Hands down. Joy is second. How's your joy? If the defense and confirmation of the gospel is at stake, how, how well are you doing? How well are we doing? Right? Are you lacking joy? Um, hang with me here for a second. If you're lacking joy, it's not because it's scarce. Joy's not an endangered species. It's not some exotic butterfly that flitters away and nobody ever really gets a sight of it, you know. It's not, it's not a rare commodity. It's, it's, it's not a, a rare collector's item. It's, it's not like this fruit that's only in season at certain times of the year, like this two-week window when the strawberries are just right, you know. Like, no. It's the fruit of the Spirit, yes, but it's always in season and it's available in spades to anyone and everyone who knows where to look, right? Like, what would you say to the person who insists on sitting in the living room, sitting in the big armchair or on the couch, whatever, you know, just enjoying the smells that are emanating from the kitchen. And, oh, this meal is just going to be so good. It smells so good. And then it's time to eat. The, the meal is served. It's in the dining room. And you tell the, your guests, come on, we're going to eat. And like, no, I'm going to sit here in the living room. And, oh, it smells so good. Oh, I'm so hungry. I can't wait. Oh, that smells amazing. Mm, mm. Oh, come on in. Come on in. No, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to stay in the living room. It's so good, you know. Like, you're just going to kind of look at that person. You're crazy. But isn't that what we're doing with joy? We're, we're, we're getting the scent of joy in all these places. And, we, and we, we get the scent of joy maybe at work. Maybe you love your work. You get a scent of joy, you know, tinkering in the garage. You get a scent of, of joy, you know, <laughs> in the bedroom. You know, sex is joyful. That's great. You get a scent of joy in your kids. You get a scent of joy in friendships and in relationships. You get a scent of joy in the stadium. You get a scent of joy online. You get a scent of joy in a bottle. You get a scent of joy on a pill. You get a scent of joy, you know, you fill in the blank. And some of those blanks are healthy and some of those blanks are poison. But none of them are the source. They're just the smell of something that's coming from somewhere else. Where is that smell coming from? Where does joy come from? Where is it? And where can I get more of it? Remember Psalm 16? You fill me with eternal pleasures at your right hand. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's where it is. It is in God's joyful presence 
That's where true, lasting, abiding, resilient joy is found. And it's in spades. It is overflowing. There is no shortage. There's no scarcity. You don't have to ration it. it is, there's, you can take as much as you want. And it will never run out. It will never run dry. So if we want real, lasting, resilient joy, we, we need the kind of joy that Paul had, that he got in on, right? So let's look at Paul's joy real quick. He's writing from prison. We've already talked about that. And yet, I, 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 was, I'm, I'm, I try to be intentional and, and deliberate in, in how I read, you know, every, every Sunday when we do a sermon and I'm reading the text. I'm, I'm trying to be mindful, like, am I reading this in a way, like, how, how we say things helps our interpretation of what's being said, right? And so, but, but this sermon in particular, as I was reading verses 1 through 11, I was trying to be extra deliberate in how I read it so that I wasn't reading it like this. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making my prayer with joy, right? That just doesn't fit. But instead, Paul's, you know, praying always in every prayer with thanksgiving. He's joyful in this prayer. And he's, you know, he's confident that God's going to complete the good work that he started in them. So there's this you know, hope that is resounding through this prayer. He, he says in verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you because I hold you in my heart. There's a love that's there. And then he goes on to say something just that, con that continues to astonish me today. He says in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all of the affection of Christ Jesus. Like, listen to that love overflowing, the affection that Paul has. And, and can you imagine him writing that, writing verse 8, you know, God is my witness, I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. What's the expression on his face? He's smiling, Right? He's sincere. He's, he's like taking an oath. God is my witness. He's not pretending. And he's, he's got this beautiful sort of other orientation. He's thinking about the Philippians and he's mindful of them. He's attuned to them. He's praying for their love to abound more and more that their lives may result in, in more fruit, more grace, more glory. This is not a, a prayer of somebody who is depressed. This is not the prayer of somebody who is angry about the injustice that, that he suffered. This isn't the, the prayer of somebody who's giving in to self-pity. He's not bitter toward his enemies. I mean, there's really, it's pretty remarkable. It's radical, actually. He is so joyful. It doesn't mean that he's, like we, we're already talking about, it. he's a realist. It doesn't mean that he's ignoring those things. Yeah, I'm suffering injustice. Yeah, I'm in prison. Yeah, this is hard. But his joy outweighs all that. And, and this is the point where I want to be really, really careful and intentional with you that this sermon and the series that we're going to do now in Philippians doesn't take a particular track, which is sadly too common in a lot of Christian circles. What would be really easy right now, kind of the default mode, I think, for, and for me, for other pastors, for a lot of Christians, is to go, look at Paul, look how joyful he is, 
And then we, we sort of take the law approach, which is you should be more like Paul. Get your act together and be more joyful, right? Or we take a guilt approach. Why can't you be more like Paul? Right? Like the parent who says, why can't you be more like your big brother or your big sister? So you, we kind of do the law thing. We do the guilt thing. We do the motivational thing. You can be like Paul. We do the super spiritual thing. Here are 12 steps to being super spiritual, like Paul. Um, and those are, it's not to say there aren't truths embedded and baked into any of those approaches, but it, it all falls short. None of these really work because they make Paul or, or, or Paul's joy the focus. In order to have Paul's joy, we need what Paul was focused on. And where was Paul's focus? Paul's focus is on the source of joy. Paul's focus is at the throne of grace. Paul's focus is at the right hand of God where there are eternal pleasures. That's Paul's focus. His focus is on Jesus. Jesus was the primary goal that Paul had in mind, and he's got to be our focus too. And that's why again and again throughout Philippians and other letters, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice. So, we got to look not only at Paul's joy, but that's just an on-ramp to Jesus' joy. And that's where we're going to spend our time here. Um, Paul writes to Timothy, for instance, and he describes the gospel as the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Uh, and, and that statement was unpacked for me in a book by John Piper called The Pleasures of God. And he took that statement and he said, all right, walk through that little now, like almost like a little sort of summary thing that Paul throws out there to Timothy. And he, and, and, and he says, pause and break that down. The gospel of the glory of the blessed God, if you were to, to translate that more fully, it would be the good news, right? The glad message of the glory, the, the amazing quality of the blessed or Joyful God, the happy God. That's what blessed means. Literally means happy. So the gospel is the good news of the glory of the happy God, the joyful God. And that's what Paul's so captivated by is who God is. This is the good news of the happy God. And God's happiness is what made Paul happy. And if we're going to be like Paul, (laughs) we have to focus on what Paul focused on. We, we have to be glad because of God's gladness. So, of course, the fullness of God is revealed to us in Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus told his disciples. And have you ever just paused to consider how joyful Jesus must have been? When you, when you look at the descriptions of Jesus in the Gospels, people are constantly drawn to him just magnetically pulled toward him. Kids are climbing up in his lap, right? Like, what kind of people do your kids want to to climb up into their lap, right? Joyful people, loving people. Um, And and the other, the fringes of society are coming, all the outcasts, the sick, the sinners, all the people that society's rejected, they're coming to Jesus. Why? 
Because they're, they're seeing in him not the stern rejection and laws and commands and uh, expectations of, of you know, those who have cast them out, but instead they're seeing welcome, they're seeing invitation, they're seeing joy, they're seeing happiness. I am glad to see you. You are welcome. It's good for you to come because I want to be with you. He's got a joy in the presence of sinners. And so it's no surprise to us then that Jesus would wrap up his ministry on the night that he was betrayed as they're having the Last Supper, and he tells his disciples, look, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I'm not hoarding it. I'm not keeping it myself. This is my mission. This is my purpose. I want you to have what I have. I want you to have it to the fullness, right? So, this is, <laughs> I don't want us to miss, Paul's, Paul's whole, you know, expectation for us as we defend and confirm the gospel is that we would be loving people, that we'd be joyful people. And then Jesus is praying that, that, that his joy would be in us and that we would have that joy to the fullness. And now I got to ask, our, ask the, the awkward question, like, how are we doing with that? Is that what people see in us? Is that what people see in the church? And rather than kind of pull us internally, like we're going to be biased, right? Maybe we ought to listen to people outside the church. What kind of view do they have of the church? What's their impression of Christians, people who say they follow Jesus, who people, people who say they follow the joyful God who wants the fullness of his joy to be full in us? Well, there was a study done in 2019 by Gallup and Pew Research combined, and they pulled a bunch of people, uh, Americans, right? And they were saying that, okay, let's, let's look at the fact that 36% of Americans believe that the church uh, or organized religion is a good thing for our country. Like, I'm, we're glad for the church. We're glad for Christians around us. 36% of Americans thought that Christians were a good thing. But that's the lowest percentage it's ever been in 2019. Another third, another 36%, say they have some confidence that the church is a healthy institution for the, for the country. And then another full third are like, no. Christians are bad for this country. Christians are bad for our communities. Christians are divisive. Christians are distracted. Christians are dangerous. One other sub-demographic to pay attention to, young adults. People between 18 and 34 are the generation most likely, most likely, to rate their confidence in the church as the lowest. So the, the next generation is looking at you know, kind of those in leadership, those in power, and so on, and going, I don't know. I don't know if I want to be like them. Does that make sense if we're doing a good job as being people who are really loving and joyful? What's happened to this vision of the church where its members are, are known for our love and our joy and our peace, right? Instead, the, the image of the church that people are getting is this institution that's just so just 
tightly wound and angry and distracted and we're a mess. But there's hope. We don't have to stay a mess, right? In Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus, you know, we get this picture of Jesus, the, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame and then sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father in heaven. And if you're struggling with joy, like, all right, I want to be part of the solution, not part of the problem, but I, I don't, how do, I, how do I get that joy? I mean, it's, at God, it's in God's presence. I know where to go now. Okay, I've been sniffing it out in all these other places, and I know I need to go to the source, but, but how, how do I connect with that? Consider Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him scorned the cross, uh, endured the cross and scorned its shame and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Is it not, it, is it not good news? Does it not make you happy? Does it not increase your joy to know that God rejoices to forgive our sins? That it was for the joy set before Jesus that he endured the cross. God is not like us who know we're supposed to forgive sins. Somebody does you, does you wrong, somebody says something or does something, and you know I'm supposed to forgive them, but you struggle with bitterness, right? I do. It's hard to forget when somebody sins against you. It's hard to let that go. It's hard to not kind of feel like, ah, oh, this person owes me something. It's hard to forgive and, and move on. Did you know that God isn't like us? Like he's actually happy to forgive our sins. For the joy set before Jesus, he, he endured the cross and scorned its shame, right? He's not embittered. He's not wrestling with forgiving us and holding grudges. He's really, truly happy to forgive your sins, right? And is it not good news that God rejoices to forgive our sins because why? Why is he forgiving our sins? What's the whole point of the gospel? Because he rejoices to be in a relationship with us. He's really happy to know you, to be with you, to partner with you to be in fellowship with you, to have us who were orphans make us sons and daughters, to have us who were enemies become friends, to have us who are aliens and strangers become citizens and, and, and men and women and children who belong, who are accepted. That makes him happy. Do you feel your heart maybe getting a little bit lighter in light of that? Like this isn't God's duty to be the forgiving God. Okay, come on in. You get off on the Jesus technicality. He's really happy to have us. And that ought to lighten our hearts. So the joy that, that was set before Jesus enabled him to endure the cross and its shame. And that was because he was rejoicing to be with us. And that, ought, that, that ought to have an effect on us, right? Well, let me just wrap up by the good work that Paul's mentioning um, here in Philippians 1. And, and he kind of gives an echo of, of, of the good work that that God began in us. He's going to be faithful to complete in us. He talks about this partnership and the, and the good news and, and completing good work. And, and you know, he's, he's full of positive energy, right? In 2 Corinthians 1, Paul says that we work with you for your joy. This is the good work. It's working for people's joy to stand firm in your faith. And that's a that's a remarkable thing that Paul views his ministry as something that 
God intends for him to bring joy to others. If some of you hate your job, you loathe the thought of going to work tomorrow morning, and chances are it's because you don't have any sense of the goodness that your work brings to other people. But if you were to go to work tomorrow confident that what you do, you know, in those hours that you're working, maybe you're at home, maybe you're at a factory, maybe you're in an office, I don't know. But if you were confident and really working out of that mindset that what I'm doing is making people glad, that's going to change how you work. Imagine Paul's job description. We work with you for your joy. One of the most startling things about the gospel is its unabashed offer of joy in God. Because the world thinks that if you want happiness, you need to kind of put religion aside, or at least, you know, put a lid on that can if you're going to go have fun, and then if you want to go be spiritual, open the can back up. Or if you're, if you're religious and spiritual, then, you know, in order to, to really be serious about religion, you, you have to, you know, forget about being happy. But that's not at all, at all what Paul's describing. That's not what Jesus is describing. Paul's saying rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say rejoice, right? This is God's good work. Paul has just got this commission to work with people for their joy because that's God's work, is he's working with us for our joy. Verse 6, Paul says, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's not just partnering in the gospel with the Philippians. God is partnering with us in the gospel. Paul's, Paul's just an example for us of what God does. God has joy in his partnership in the gospel with us. God rejoices in this. He's not this stoic monarch. He's not... Um, this sort of dutiful king of kings. Uh, I, I know, you know, many of you have been watching and following some of the events following Queen Elizabeth's passing. And, and she was a remarkable queen, right? I mean, I, there, there really are very, very few detractors. And if you've been on a throne for centuries, <laughs> decades, all right, like she was, you, it would be hard to not have made some enemies along the way, right? But where are her detractors? People have nothing but good things to say about her because she had this ability, right, to, to just unify people. And, and she was good at, like, the Guardian uh, British newspaper described her as, like, this person who brought cohesiveness to, to Great Britain. Um, and you look at the pictures of her, and she's constantly smiling, and she's constantly, you know, doing her you know, duty as queen, as monarch, to, to meet with people and to be at these ceremonies and stuff. But you know what you don't see too often? You see her smiling. How many pictures have you seen where she looks like this? Where she's just doing the full-on belly laugh just doubled over like, like that pain in her side because she's been laughing so hard. Like, like these women, this, this is a great painting of these milkmaids. Who knows what the joke is, but they can't even contain themselves. Like they're partnering in this work of milking the cows, but they're just overcome with joy and with laughter in what they're doing. 
And I want you to get that image into your head for God's joy in what he does. Yeah, he's a king. Yeah, he's got a kingdom. Yeah, he's got an empire. But he's not stiff upper lip British, you know, monarchy. He's the, the God who's doing cartwheels as he's running toward his, the, the prodigal son, happy to have him home. He's Jesus who for the joy set before him endured the cross and scorned its shame. And this is the way that God partners with us. It is his good work to lead us into more joy in light of the good news. He wants us to know more of the joy that can be had because of the glad message of the gospel. And he wants us to have more joy in partnering with him in spreading that glad message around to the neighbors and, our, and the nations around us. So God is the one fundamentally partnering with us for our joy, not Paul. And Paul is just a mirror of that. And, and this is a happy work that God has. He's got a happy job description to make the world happy, right? Read the Psalm, Psalm 67. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm 98, the Lord has made known his salvation. He's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth with joyful songs and sing praises. That's God's job description. That's a happy job. Psalm 98 was what inspired Isaac Watts to write Joy to the World. You know that song we sing at Christmas? We're calling this series that we're going to do through Christmas Joy for the World. Kind of sounds familiar, right? Sounds a little bit like Christmas, a little bit like Advent. Well, maybe, maybe we need an Advent to our Advent. Maybe we need to be reminded of the joy that God has for us in Him. The fact that joy is not endangered. It's not rare. It's not scarce. And we can have all that we want when we get it in Him. This is why the angels told the shepherds, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. That will be for you. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for, for the good news of great joy that is for all the people, for anyone who wants it, anytime, any place, even in prison. And Lord, I know that um, there are prisons uh, represented here, places where we're struggling, where we feel depressed, where we feel distracted, where we feel um, anything but loving and joyful. Uh, we pray that you would show us where to repent, how to repent, where we've been sniffing for joy and we can be drinking deeply and eating gluttonously uh, from you. Lord, would you help us to look to Jesus as the source, the origin of all good things, as the, the place where we're going to find eternal happiness, uh, Lord, and to rejoice in Him. Lord, thank You for giving us this ministry, this partnership in making others joyful as You have revealed Jesus to us. Lord, make us faithful as we defend and confirm the gospel to show people the way that You're making us more loving, the way that You're making us more joyful, more peaceful, etc. And Lord, for any here who are just now learning about the joy that was set before Jesus, to endure the cross and to scorn its shame, to, to take our sins away because it makes you happy to do that. 
Lord, give them joy in your salvation. Give them faith and repentance and help all of us grow in these things. We ask in Jesus' name.